0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. So this episode, we're gonna do something a little bit different. And instead of sort of focusing on what's shitty about the world right now, we're gonna tell a little story about change happening in the past, which I think will be a nice sort of optimistic departure from our usual episodes.
1: Although I feel like you are going to be talking about how shitty the world used to be, which isn't so much different from what we usually do anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's not like the problems that we're, like, we're we're going to be talking about the civil rights movement. It's not like these problems are solved by any means. So I guess maybe it's not all that optimistic, but we're going to be talking about something called Operation Breadbasket, which is a boycott campaign that was really successfully implemented across a number of American cities. And I think it's kind of an empowering story because it it tells a story of how Black people in America started to recognize and marshal their consumer power in order to um, convert that into economic power. And there's actually a fairly straightforward model that could be applied to a number of different social issues today. And I, I don't know, I just think it's a cool story. And I think it's... Um, one that doesn't get told a lot. Cool. Awesome. I'm excited.
1: <laughs> did you do a challenge for this episode? Um, I did. You Did you? Okay. So, full disclosure, Um, when you were like, let's do an episode about Operation Breadbasket, I was like, okay, because I didn't want you to think I was stupid, but I had never heard of Operation Breadbasket <laughs> before you said that we should do an episode about it, so... I did some light Googling, because I didn't want to spoil all of your research, <laughs> and I saw that it was a boycott movement. So <laughs> my challenge, I decided, was to be a boycott, but I don't know how to do it properly, or I mean, basically, I I identified two companies that I should be boycotting anyways, uh, Coca-Cola and Amazon. <laughs> And uh, we can talk about how I can maybe go about doing that at the end after I learn more about how the civil rights movement was
0: so successful. Sounds good. Sure. And I think one of the lessons we'll we'll learn from this episode is that, so you'll often see like on social media and stuff, the like hashtag boycott this or hashtag boycott that. And there's been this whole narrative around how boycotts aren't very successful because they end up being like a hashtag for a few days and then they go away. Um, and I think that is sort of a symptom of the fact that a lot of boycotts, as they're practiced today, they're just these like spontaneous um, consumer hashtags. And what Operation Breadbasket shows is actually that when boycotts are done effectively, they require an actual organizational machinery and coordination and ideally some sort of tie to the community so you can have things like picketing and leafleting. So we'll talk about like all of those things a little bit more when we go into the story, but that might be why it's sort of like alienating for you to try to approach uh, a boycott of like a company like Amazon. Yeah, because it's like,
1: oh, I just won't buy their stuff or or use their products, but they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's 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 a just it's just a challenge for me that doesn't feel like it accomplishes anything. So I'm excited to learn more about how boycotts can be successful.
0: Yeah, for sure. So. If you're in the same boat as Kyla and you have never heard of Operation Breadbasket before, you are not alone. I also had not heard of Operation Breadbasket before a couple of months ago. And it's it's really not, like, something that's talked about a lot in the context of the civil rights movement. So you're not by any means dumb for not knowing what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, um, I'll say the book that I used to, um, to prep for this episode, it's uh, called Operation Breadbasket, an Untold Story of Civil Rights in Chicago. And it's written by Martin Depp, who is one of the pastors that was sort of heavily involved in the movement. Uh, and he talks about the approach to wanting to write a book about Operation Breadbasket. And essentially, it came out of this idea that this thing that he was a part of for so many years and that he felt was really successful hadn't really gotten very much attention at all in the academic community, and it kind of didn't fit with the existing narratives of sort of like the civil rights movement and then the, the Black Power movement. He saw it as sort of operating in a, a middle between the two to a certain degree. This like undertelling of the Operation Breadbasket story is really a part of why he decides to write a book and... My curiosity in picking up this book is part of why I wanted to do an episode on it because I think it's just so cool. So why tell the story of Operation Breadbasket? Why talk about a boycott movement from the 60s? I think there are two reasons. The first one is that this is a story we're telling. We should know more about the social movements that help to make our world better and that can help us understand how today to make our world better. And I think related to that... There's a second reason, that Operation Breadbasket demonstrates that we as, as people have a lot more power than we sometimes realize. So nonviolent direct actions like protests, strikes, and boycotts are an immense tool for change. And we should all be thinking about our communities and how we can help to use these tools to fight the many, many injustices that are out there. Okay.
1: <laughs> Here we go. <laughs>
0: Here we go. Uh, A little bit more uh, lead up. Let's talk about what boycotts are to start with. So a boycott is a kind of nonviolent direct action. There are lots of different kinds of nonviolent action. It can include protests. It can include petitions, all kinds of different activities. Um, And boycotting is sort of like one of the main tactics that's under that umbrella, Basically, a boycott campaign consists of a concerted refusal to spend money. And within that, also an aim to convince other people around you to refuse to spend money on a product or a service in the hopes of changing some specific conditions or practices of an institution. So you, you talked about the boycott of Amazon. That's one that's been called for... What was the other company you mentioned? Coca-Cola. Oh, sure. Yeah. There's also... <laughs> You might have heard of boycotts. uh, There are a lot of boycotts around Nestle. Yeah. Yeah, the Boycott Divest Sanction Movement, which it boycotts products that are produced in Israel as a sort of stand against Israeli occupation in Palestinian areas. That's another sort of well-known one. Any other boycotts you can think of? I don't know. (laughs) There's actually a whole Wikipedia
1: page for boycotts that are ongoing right now. So. We can link to that. I just chose yeah. Coca-Cola and Amazon because I I knew that those are the two companies that were on the list that I still occasionally give money to. So, I mean, it's easy it's easy for me to boycott Nestle when I never eat their candy bars, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's part of um that's part of the mechanism of a boycott, too, right? It's supposed to be a specific refusal, right? So a boycott doesn't really work if it's only appealing to people that never purchase from a company anyway. So like Chick-fil-A as an example, right? If you're gonna have a boycott of Chick-fil-A because you don't like that they fund anti-transgender and anti-LG, I guess, anti-LGBTQ2S plus organizations, um, then you need to appeal to people that might have bought from Chick-fil-A and that are going to stop getting chicken sandwiches, right? If you're just appealing to vegetarians that already don't purchase from Chick-fil-A, then you're not really you don't really have an effective boycott campaign because Chick-fil-A is not going to care about your demands. <laughs> yeah. They're not selling <laughs> to that demographic anyways. <laughs> Whereas like if you're convincing people who love their chicken sandwiches that they should maybe not buy them even though they love them because they think they're evil. Like, that's when you have an effective boycott campaign, right? Um, it's So it's it's sort of in the short term changing people's consumption behavior, but drawing from like a latent um, consumer base for whatever group you're targeting.
1: So for Kristen, it would be if she had to boycott chips and if, if I had to boycott <laughs> McDonald's, that would be <laughs> the
0: most effective ones for us. Yeah, but it could be anything, right? Like, um, you could talk about a boycott of, like, Netflix for some reason or something like that. Like, as long as it's a withdrawal from something people are using, then a boycott campaign can work. Uh, so, although boycott campaigns, they're oftentimes sort of, like, adversarial in nature, a big part of the push is that you're threatening to have a bunch of people withdraw from buying from a company. Another important aspect of any boycott campaign that's actually an organized campaign rather than a spontaneous boycott is that you have to sort of build in opportunities for reform and redemption, right? So if you're going to say boycott Amazon, you have to have a list of activities that Amazon could do to reform itself so that you would end the boycott. Otherwise, it again doesn't really work because that company is just going to see you and say, okay, well, that's an opposition group, but we can't change their mind, right? So it's this sort of interesting push and pull that you'll see happen through Operation Breadbasket as well. The last thing to note is that boycott campaigns are actually... They've been around for a really long time. So the history of boycott campaigns goes back at least 200 years. I think the first recorded one was in... I think it was in Ireland. It may have been in Scotland. People can at me uh, to tell me which one. (laughs) But it was essentially like... People withdrew from like a shitty landlord, I think it was the first one. And, you know, but there have been lots and lots of boycott campaigns since that time. One that people might remember is sort of like the most famous boycott, I think, is uh, the like anti-South African apartheid boycotts was really effective in getting apartheid to end. So um, people may remember that in the context of boycotts. Let's get into the civil rights story, though. There is a long tradition of boycotts in the civil rights movement in America, and I want to do that justice. But first, I think it's important to just give people a general overview of like, racial equality movements in the United States in the 20th century. I'm not going to talk too much about this because I'm not an expert, but just to give people enough information to be able to follow the story later. So as you'll typically hear about it, the civil rights movement sort of picks up steam, particularly around the 40s, and it experiences a heyday sort of in the 50s and early 60s. And there's typically this story that's told about a decline of the civil rights movement after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. And sort of from that general period of time because there's also sort of some decline that's happening before that. Um, There's a shift towards a Black Power movement, uh, which it's sort of embodied by the Black Panthers, but there's lots of other elements going on there, too. If anybody wants to know more about the Black
1: Panthers, Behind the Bastards did a really good, I think it was a two-parter episode on their podcast. So
0: definitely check that out. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one for sure. So the civil rights movements focused more on ending discrimination and especially segregation and then establishing equal rights in the law. Whereas the black power movement was sor- sort of more focused on black pride and black community control. So this sort of like anti police violence is also very, like, very tied in with the black power movement. When you talk about civil rights, The big organization that you would talk about associated with that is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, and that was formed in 1957. On the other hand, when you're talking about the Black Power Movement, you're mostly talking about the Black Panther Party, which was founded in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Yeah, the the, the Black Panther's formed out of sort of this challenge to police brutality through citizen patrols, uh, but they also carried out a number of self-help programs like school lunches. A lot of the times their sort of like violent um, reputation kind of gets um, more of the attention, but they were also heavily involved in sort of like building, meeting community needs and things like that. And it, it is fair to say, though, that there is a, an ideological shift and that you might see the sort of black power movement as being more revolutionary. There are a lot more linkages to things like Marxism. Whereas on the other hand, the civil rights movement and the SCLC is more sort of like small C conservative, right? It's a bunch of pastors and it's very connected into the Christian community. So you, and there's this very strong sense that all action should be nonviolent, you know, use of legitimate channels, um, as much as possible. So there there is sort of like a clash in the approach as well as the values that are taken on. But I think a lot of the time it is sort of overstated the extent to which these are two separate movements. So there actually were sort of a lot of connections between the two. And Operation Breadbasket is a good example because it sort of shifts over its history and um, it takes on elements of Black Power as the Black Power movement starts to take ascendancy, right? So at its sort of core, Operation Breadbasket is an economic empowerment initiative and it starts to use narratives of black pride and empowerment entrepreneurship as um, that becomes sort of a popular thing within black communities across America. And certainly when whenever there was a major event like a police killing or an assassination of members on in, in any group um, that affects, both movements, right, Uh, has a profound effect on people. One thing that I find really interesting about the breadbasket story, though, is that I think you can't really tell the story of breadbasket if you're just focusing on civil rights. So even though Operation Breadbasket takes this softer approach, they're negotiating with companies and occasionally practicing, like, economic withdrawal. In the looming background, in every company they're talking to, there's this background with all of the sort of riots and protests that are happening across American cities in the mid to late 60s. So I think without that other side, you, you perhaps have less power for this more, um, I'm trying to think of like a term for like this advocacy with ties on versus, you know, a more sort of grassroots. Which is, it's not to say that Operation Breadbasket wasn't grassroots, but they definitely was, like, more, um, you know, proper and, like, approachable from a business community perspective, you know? Okay, yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know if I described that well. Anyway, (laughs) okay. Uh, But it's important to note that Operation Breadbasket, like, draws on a long history of boycotts in the civil rights movement. So it wasn't by any means the first boycott movement in civil rights, one of the first ones happened in 1929 Chicago, and it was a campaign that was called Don't Buy Where You Can't Work, and it targeted a department store called Woolworth. When this is happening, like in the midst of the Depression, when uh, the Depression is hitting black workers much harder than white workers, although not a good time for anybody. <laughs> depression, bad time. <laughs> but <laughs> It's in the name. It's, <laughs> yeah, depression. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, so that boycott campaign was actually pretty successful. It, uh, it got the department store Woolworth to agree to a policy of hiring 25% black employees in stores. So had a good outcome, but it was also kind of a one-off. It didn't really spur a larger organization. The next one you've probably heard of, uh, so Rosa Parks. Oh, the bus boycotts? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly, yeah. So the Montgomery bus boycotts are maybe the most famous boycott associated with the civil rights era. And it was a boycott that started in December 1955 and went on for 381 days. Uh, The bus boycotts were partially about desegregating buses, but they were also about um, economic empowerment too. It was not only that Black Americans wanted to be able to sit alongside white Americans, they also wanted to be able to drive buses and own bus companies. So that like economic stream really is a thread that goes throughout the history of the civil rights era. Uh, There's also the Birmingham campaign, which uh, was seeking to boycott businesses that had uh, segregated restrooms or only hired white people. And then there's something called selective patronage, which is really sort of like it's the precursor to Operation Breadbasket, and it sets up the model that gets used. So selective patronage is something that was popularized by Reverend Leon Sullivan of Philadelphia. He has the best nickname of all time, uh, the Lion of Zion. <laughs> Whoa. Like
1: <laughs> what? Do you know where he got that or just... He, no. You just earn a nickname like that somehow.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like you have to. I wish I had a nickname that cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Listeners, tweet at Kristen <laughs> with nicknames as cool as the Lion
0: of Zion. I don't think anybody can match that. That's such a cool nickname. But yeah, so the Lion of Zion or Leon Sullivan, uh, he creates... Where he popularizes this idea of selective, selective patronage, which is basically the idea that you'll, you can strategically withhold black patronage from businesses that discriminate and that that should especially occur when discrimination is on black employment. The idea that if you're a business operating in black neighborhoods and taking black consumer dollars, that like some of that should go back to black people in the form of employment.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. <laughs> if you're going to operate within the community, that's the idea of capitalism, isn't it? In like in its purest form, the I am not a huge fan of capitalism, but proponents <laughs> will argue like it, it's supposed to be a circle. It circulates back into the community, but if you're not employing people from that community and you're spending your money outside of that community, then you're not a very good capitalist. I don't know. Or you're a great crack capitalist.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think um, Marx would say you're a great capitalist if you're doing that. But <laughs> 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 Yeah, so um, he creates this program where basically teams of ministers in Philadelphia are negotiating for jobs with corporations that do business in black communities, and they're threatening boycotts as sort of like the lever at the negotiating table that they have. And this was sort of a really successful program. It had opened up 2,000 skilled jobs in Philadelphia by 1963. And so everyone's kind of looking at Philadelphia and saying, wow, this Lion of Zion, he's pretty awesome, and not just because of his nickname. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, asks him to basically present at the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta. And they liked the idea enough that um, the SCLC decided that they were going to create Operation Breadbasket. And it started in Atlanta in 1962. I'm mostly going to talk about Operation Breadbasket in Chicago. I'll talk a little bit about how it went in Atlanta. But I think to understand, it, it sort of mostly got the attention of the SCLC in Chicago, partly because they had also moved their operations up north um, in the mid-60s. So I think it's just important to talk about why that happened and how Operation Breadbasket fits into that. So the first piece of context that's important is something called the Great Migration. And that's basically that between 1916 and 1970, there was a relocation of more than 6 million Black Americans from the rural South to cities in basically like the northern half of, of the country. So the Great Migration, it was prompted by sort of like harsh segregationist laws and also really bad economic opportunities in the South. And overall, there were better opportunities in the North. So a lot of people started moving northward, especially during the two world wars, because there was such a demand for labor that this provided. It sort of cracked the color ceiling in jobs because there is in the same way that it did for women, right? During the wars, there was such a need for labor that, you know, discrimination was kind of, like, put on hold for a bit to a certain degree. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Which is nice, except when World War One ended, a lot of black Americans were then either fired or expected to return to unskilled jobs um, so that they could make way for, like, white people returning from the war. boo hiss. So uh, that meant that the Great Depression, when it happened, was particularly bad for Black unemployment. So in 1931, 58.5% of employable Black women and 43.5% of employable Black men were unemployed.
1: Whoa, those were the numbers? Holy smokes. It puts our recessions of the past decade um, I mean, they haven't been great, but I don't think they've been that bad.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know what the figures were for white Americans, but I have to imagine it was lower than that. Okay. So that's really, that's really shitty. The depression sucks, especially for black people, but for everybody. And then World War II happens and black employment goes up because again, there's a, a need for labor. And so racism takes a back seat. <laughs> So the need to produce, like, I don't know, parachutes and whatnot. It's crazy, like, the
1: kind of um, catastrophes it takes sometimes to change the world in a way that it it shouldn't. I mean, I don't know. We're seeing that a little bit with COVID, I think. But, like, the how bad things have to get before people at the top are like, mm, maybe we could be better.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we're at a real risk of COVID, like, Post COVID policies just going back to normal. Yay! I saw
1: an article that <laughs> Al Gore is optimistic. So
0: <laughs> oh, great. He was also optimistic about his election uh, prospects in two thousand.
1: <laughs> you make an excellent point. All right, keep telling me about uh, <laughs> about a hundred years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Um, The Second World War ends, and it's kind of not as bad as what happens after the First World War, because there's also this, like, wonderful period of general economic prosperity that happens for America in the 50s. So that helps to narrow the gap a little bit between black and white Americans in terms of their employment and their wages. But unfortunately, by 1960, that starts to stop. And uh, the job ceiling for black Americans becomes an increasing point of contention. So by the mid-1960s, the unemployment rate like, amongst people, ab- amongst black Chicagoans was twice that of white Chicagoans. So that's the kind of thing that's happening across across America. And in particular, in these sort of northern cities where there's been an influx of uh of Black Americans because they're fleeing the even shittier conditions in like the southern half of the country. And then at the same time, you have sort of like deindustrialization and the loss of American manufacturing jobs. So, as like there's not a huge economic boom, companies aren't hiring as much. And so they're, they're privileging white workers because racism. And that makes the problem even worse. And at, at the same time, you start to see sort of like um, a rising sense of uh, – a rising willingness to sort of advocate on the part of what should be equality, you know? And as a result, the mid-1960s becomes a period of immense protest, and in some cases that erupts in, into violence. And there was a, a growing sense that black Americans would no longer sort of quietly submit to the deprivation of life in slums, basically. There's a, a, a good quote that this book has from President Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, he did not say this in public. He said it in private. But quote, the Negro is still nowhere. He knows it. And that's why he's out in the streets. Hell, I'd be there too. Uh, so I think I've heard that quote before. Yeah, it, it gives me like, I think that gives like a, just a good general context on what's going on at that period of time. And it's in that context that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference moves north in the 1960s to sort of address a new form of segregation, which is the the subjugation of black Americans in slums, in cities that are supposedly desegregated, right? Was that when redlining was happening? Yeah. So economic liberation is sort of one pillar of this movement north, but the other pillar is housing equality, And stopping things like redlining, for sure. So redlining is basically like racial discrimination in housing contexts. So one of the ways that it manifests itself is like, if you were trying to live in a neighborhood in Chicago that was, quote unquote, like white neighborhood, um, as a black American, you like wouldn't be able to get a house there. And then you'd go to a quote unquote, black neighborhood, and you'd have to get a more expensive place a lot of the time that was like worse quality um, because racism.
1: <laughs> and it's called redlining, I think, because what real estate agents had actually drawn like maps with red pens or whatever that were like these neighborhoods, you can sell uh, houses to black Americans. And then these houses, these areas you can't or whatever. I don't know, actually, I don't know enough about it.
0: No, and I, th- I think you're right about that. I think Today, redlining still exists in, like, more sort of informal, like, shadowier forms, but I don't know that much about it, unfortunately, so. I
1: saw a really good Instagram video about this that I will share um, to our page, but it's basically, like, if you grow up in a neighborhood that has property taxes that aren't funding schools as well, then you're not going to go to as good of a school. And then that means that you won't be maybe accepted to as good of a university, or you won't have the chance of going to university at all. And that makes your chances of owning a home in a nicer neighborhood, well, quote, unquote, nicer, uh, you know, more difficult later on, because, like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think i you know what? I can't find the stat on it, but I, I saw um, a report a while back that basically said if you looked at the racial makeup in schools, um, America is actually more segregated now than it was when Brown v. Board came out. So,
1: <sighs>
0: Yeah, and I think I
1: think redlining back in the day has a lot to do with that today because change takes a long time. So even though Now, technically, anybody can buy a house anywhere. You still have a hard time. I don't know enough about this. Not only am I not American, I am not black.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like, I don't know to what extent. So I'm sure racial, I'm sure racism still plays a role in real estate. I know in the Canadian context, being like a person of color or having a status like being a refugee or something like that. It makes it a lot more difficult for you to find housing, um, especially in places like Toronto where the vacancy rate is so low because landlords can like practice all kinds of sort of discrimination that like there's really it's really tough to catch and enforce. So I would imagine that that same kind of practice is going on in American real estate today, but I don't really know. Anyway, sorry for getting us off on a tangent. No, no, it's it's not a tangent at all because it it does set the context, right? Because you've got this like, there's redlining going on um, and at the same time, there's like high levels of black unemployment. And also, if you are a black American that has a job, you're probably in an unskilled job um, and not in a managerial position and oftentimes not handling money. And the causes for that are sometimes just straight-up racism, like, in its most overt form. Uh, But sometimes they could have sort of, like, subtler causes, like um, the, you know, segregation in school means that education levels can differ and the quality of education can differ. And so that makes it more likely that your managerial candidates are going to be white for various reasons. These are things that exist, continue to today, but... They were really bad in the 1960s. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, in this context, the SCLC moves north to Chicago, and they decide that they're going to focus on getting rid of slums, improving living conditions for Black Americans in northern cities like Chicago, and they're going to do that by focusing on housing and also on getting people good jobs, 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 That's jobs. Rad. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So they start with housing and it's not, does not go well because, I mean, there's a really long story about why it didn't go well, but mostly it's just that they had an intransigent mayor that refused to do things. They really weren't making very much headway on that. And so Operation Breadbasket in Chicago ends up kind of being the focal point of what the SCLC is doing, although they're certainly doing lots of other things at the same time, just because they're not getting as much progress on the housing fronts as they wanted, and they do start to see success in getting black people jobs through threatening boycotts. So, yeah, Operation Breadbasket is a response to these um, racial barriers in employment, and it's set up in 1962 in Atlanta. And like, as I mentioned before, it's modeled on the Lion of Zion's really successful approach in Philadelphia. In Atlanta, Operation Breadbasket begins with the bread industry, hence the name. Ah, I'm glad you explained that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if we get to the end of the episode and I have to ask why, why, why the name, I'm going to feel like a real goose because everyone else probably already <laughs> knows. But okay, it started with the bread industry. Cool.
0: Yeah. I One of the things that I think is interesting is so so they had targeted a few different bread companies in the Atlanta area. But the first one they actually campaigned against was called the Colonial Bakery. Oh my! And as soon as God. I read that name, I was like, "Yeah, I bet they weren't great." <laughs> <laughs> no shit. <laughs> so yeah, that was the first company they boycotted, and uh, it eventually gave into their demands after they were sort of picketing for a while. And Atlanta kind of continues doing the same thing between 1962 and 1966. And over that time, it succeeds in getting 4,000 jobs for Black Americans in Atlanta, which I think is pretty awesome. Which is from that one company? No, no. This is like it's going through multiple campaigns like that. Okay. Do they like pick a company one at a time? Yeah. I'm going to talk more about Chicago because that's what this book was about. Um, Oh, yeah. Sure. Sorry. Yeah. The model is basically, yeah, they they pick specific companies. I'll explain their approach. Perfect. (laughs) So, um... When Operation Breadbasket was formed in Chicago, it became an important element of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's overall strategy. So it's launched in 1966 in Chicago with a group of about 60 pastors, of which like 20 of them were actively involved. Um, So a fairly large group of pastors and then sort of like an even larger group that they can draw from that are then going to say something in their Sunday sermons about, you know, Boycott. I don't know what's a company that came up here. A and P. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've maybe heard of uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson?
1: I have heard the name, but I I don't know enough to know anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know a lot about who he was, other than that he was sort of like a big civil rights guy that likes sometimes comments on things and. He's relevant to the story because Jesse Jackson had kind of just been getting into the whole civil rights game, and uh, he was the leader of the Chicago Operation Breadbasket, and that was kind of what launched his civil rights career. So Operation Breadbasket, I had mentioned before that like targeting bread was part of the reason for the name, Uh, but another way to sort of understand the origin of the name is There's, like, this concept of a breadbasket as putting food on the table, and, you know, you can think about putting food on the table as being, you know, having a steady job so you can provide. So that was another way that, like, that name was understood. Operation Breadbasket had, like, a whole bunch of components. It brought people together for social gatherings. It did a bunch of stuff, but its main focus was creating job opportunities for Black Americans through consumer pressure. And that model included six steps. So the first one was information gathering. Basically, what would happen is a team of clergy would reach out to a company and request a copy of their Equal Employment Opportunity Commission annual report, which I understand it was basically a document that the 1964 Civil Rights Act required. And it had, as far as I understand, information on the level of employment of people in different racial categories and things like that. So they'd go out, they'd request that that document from the companies. In a lot of cases, the companies would give it to them. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, and they'd also ask for uh, the salaries by category and some other supplementary information. And that, that information would help them to understand, like, okay, how many black people is this company employing anyway? And how do we sort of square that with the extent to which this company is based in Black communities in Chicago. And so based on that, they would then go to step two, which is committee evaluation, where this committee of pastors would try to decide on what the set of demands that they were going to ask were. And as a baseline, they had picked 20% Black employees, which sort of made sense because 28% of Chicagoans were Black at the time. So Slightly lower than like a, an actual reflection of the population, but a lot, oftentimes a lot higher than the actual hiring was for these companies. In a, a lot of cases, it was like in the sin, single digits. So they, they take that baseline and then they think, you know, do we need to adjust this? Is this company like, how many stores does it have in traditionally black neighborhoods? Like things like that. And they'd put together their sort of list of like ideal demands. Then this team of clergy would meet with the company for, like, education and negotiation sessions, basically. And the target of that was to reach agreement on objectives for things like black employment, although they did later broaden to a series of other things, uh, which I think is really interesting. One of the things was getting black products on shelves. So having – when they were targeting supermarkets, they would say, like, We'd like you to have shelf space for black owned businesses, basically, which would give people an opportunity to it was often hard for black businesses to get onto store shelves of major of major supermarkets. Another thing they'd often do is sort of ask companies to put a certain amount of money in black banks, which, again, is sort of this idea that if you want to keep some of the, the money that's being paid from Black consumers in Black communities, having that money physically sit at a Black bank is, is kind of a, a good way to do that. They also like quickly learned that one of the barriers to employing to employing Black workers was oftentimes that training disparity that I mentioned before. So they tried a few different approaches to deal with that, but the one they ended up on was basically asking for companies to commit to training black employees. So oftentimes that would be sort of like upskilling them so that you could promote them. But in other cases, it would be bringing on new black employees and providing them with the proper training to do the job. So once they've gone through those negotiations, which were sometimes really tense and sometimes companies would like basically tell them to fuck off. Sometimes companies would be sort of much more willing to discuss and, that would sort of be the only process. But if if the company started to shut down or wasn't agreeing to as much as they wanted, they'd go to step four, which was economic withdrawal and picketing. So sometimes this happened, like, at the very beginning of the process, and they'd be like, hey, can you share your report with us? And the company would say, nah, brah. Or they'd, like, even refuse to set up a meeting. In which case, like, the clergy would fly to their pulpits and call for a boycott. Uh- <laughs> and uh sometimes it would be sort of like they're in a negotiation but eventually the company says no we're not going to do that then they'd go or you know various other things but when they did call for an economic withdrawal that would be sort of filtered through the churches which is is cool because it's sort of a built-in community and a, a good way to reach a lot of people that could potentially participate in your boycott So they also would couple this with picketing around various different stores of that company in black communities and leafleting. So handing out flyers saying, don't buy like this brand of bread or don't buy this kind of milk or boycott Pepsi. That was one of the ones that they had at a certain point. And uh, they'd sort of get the message out like through that community organizing as well as just having people to withdraw. And that kind of um, picketing would also draw local media attention, which was helpful. So economic withdrawal did not occur in every case, but it was a pretty common facet of what they were doing. And even in cases where there wasn't an actual boycott that was called for, that underlying threat and the sort of knowledge amongst companies that, you know, okay, we remember this boycott from six months ago and it really cost this other store a lot of money – Like, that was a a huge factor in providing leverage for Operation Breadbasket. The goal was ultimately creating an agreement or what they preferred to call a covenant. Basically, that would be when the Breadbasket team and the company agreed on a set of targets, they'd formalize it in an agreement. So it would say, how many black jobs do you promise in, like, how many of those are going to be management jobs? How many of those are going to be, you know, whatever other jobs? there are sometimes also targets to like contract out to black businesses. And one of the big uh, groups for that was black scavengers. So you could set a target to say, okay, like X percentage of your contracts would be with black owned businesses. And once they've got that whole agreement put together, whatever the targets are that are in there, if there wasn't like a boycott, that boycott would be called off when the agreement was reached. And then there'd be sort of like a fancy, like, public signing at which the company would say nice things, and then Operation Breadbasket representatives would say nice things, and there'd be sort of that redemption arc, you know, a peace building, I guess. And then the last one, which is really important if you're somebody that's looking at setting up a boycott campaign, was monitoring. So this is something they didn't start doing right away, but they recognized was sort of like one of the most important things make sure that the companies are doing the things they
1: promised to do. (laughs)
0: Uh Yeah, because oftentimes they don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's easy to say like, yeah,
1: we'll do what you want and then turn around and go back to business as usual, right?
0: Yeah. So they basically they regularly follow up to monitor the implementation, make sure that, you know, first of all, they're actually hiring the number of employees they said they'd hire. But then, you know, what if a lot of the black employees that get hired end up quitting because they're not provided a good work environment. Like That signals some sort of problem with the agreement, too. So if companies didn't hold up to their end of the bargain or weren't reasonably close to it, Breadbasket might initiate another boycott. Uh, so that was sort of something they they kept in their back pocket. Operation Breadbasket was... Really successful in Chicago, and it, it touched a number of different industries. So it started with bread, milk, soft drink, and soup companies, because those were some of the the big Chicago local businesses. Then it moved on to supermarkets and other companies like construction. Wow, they did a lot. How many years did this run for? It ran from in Chicago from 1966 to 1971. Wow, they did all of that in like
1: five years yeah pretty cool huh it sounds like so much work
0: yeah it sounds exhausting frankly like this it basically became the pastors that are doing this like at least a part-time job for them at least yeah yeah (laughs) there's some pretty good outcomes as well in in the years that operation breadbasket was in operation it created 4,500 jobs for Black Chicagoans, and an, which is an estimated $29 million in annual income. So that's just direct job commitments. But if you're also including the income for Black products and service contracts, uh, Breadbasket actually created $57.5 million annually for the Black community in Chicago. And that's equivalent to $392 million in, like, current day. So uh, Operation Breadbasket doesn't exist anymore. It sort of ran into internal problems and also, like, kind of mission shift. You know, it started doing a bunch of other things. And it shifted into an organization called Operation Push, which itself shifted in the 80s and became the Rainbow Push Coalition or Rainbow Push now. So it, it... Operation Breadbasket, or, like, what what it has transformed into, does continue to exist today, but it doesn't really do the boycotts piece anymore. That's not sort of a part of it. Yeah, so Operation Breadbasket created a lot of jabs.
1: <laughs> That's cool. That's yeah. a cool story. Hmm. Uh, to prep for this episode a little bit just to basically figure out like what is it I opened the Martin Luther King Jr. autobiography and I f- and I flipped to the index and I was like where is operation breadbasket and it's mentioned on like two pages and it's, <laughs> yeah. and I re- and I read the whole paragraph that talked about it so it's nice to <laughs> to hear more depth about it cuz the way that it was put in in the book was really brief but like interesting and I was like oh I want to know more about that so thank you <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's super cool. So shout out to Martin Depp for writing writing his book. I don't know, do we want to talk about like have you learned anything about boycotts from this
1: or? Yeah, um I don't know if I have the energy to pull off a successful one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you need like a team, you know.
1: Yeah, well and they were they were targeting local Chicago businesses. I vaguely mentioned Coca-Cola and Amazon which are behemoths <laughs> like there's yes there's, it would be, it would take a lot for me to get them to change anything but I can definitely stop supporting them with my money at the very least.
0: Yeah, or like I guess maybe the lesson for people would be you can participate in well-organized boycott campaigns cuz those are the ones that are likely to succeed. Especially if they're local. That seemed to be a huge piece of Operation Breadbasket. That they could, like, actually go to local communities and be like, look, you say you're part of this community. You're selling in black neighborhoods. And yet you've got, like, four black black employees. Like, what the fuck, man? And that just, like, doesn't work as well when you're talking to a multinational, I think. You know, you have to have a different strategy.
1: Yeah, and it's tough, I think, because local businesses are really struggling um especially during our like entire generation and it's just getting worse over time globalization is really making it so that targeting a local business unless they're doing something really egregious like they're being really homophobic it just uh, i mean cuz then the alternative is you're supporting a big a big corporation right i don't know
0: no you're right and it's also like i was thinking about this too like, to what extent was Operation Breadbasket so successful because of its linkages to the church? On two fronts, right? Like, Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, what what were you thinking of it in the context of? I'm curious.
1: Well, I was just, you were telling the story and I was like, wow, I mean, like every Sunday, these pastors have an audience yes. that they speak to, they can make eye contact with. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything that people participate in today that would have that same connection. Yes. If it wasn't religion still and you have fewer people who are religious. I mean, religion has its own problems, but within the context of, of, of having that community, it's really hard to think of how you would be able to organize people as well as, you know, they were doing it in the sixties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that was like the first barrier that I thought. But the second thing, and I didn't talk about this as much in the story, but a lot of what they're doing when they go to these companies is actually kind of like preaching at them. Uh, like they're bringing up biblical references. And the the way they kind of framed it is like, what do you, does morality require of you as a business? And they're they're doing that sort of in a very theological lens. And that only works because at the time America was like, And still today, but it only works because, you know, you can go to these companies and like, they at least notionally are going to have Christian ethics, you know? And so there's like a, a built in values match, but now it's like, I mean, I, I generally, I mean, i I'm an atheist, so
1: Yeah, we haven't talked about religion too much on this show, <laughs> but I also atheist, and I think you'll find more companies are hesitant to display Christian values now than certainly than they were in the sixties when it was a thing they had to do, right?
0: Yeah, and it's like I mean I don't I don't think it has to be specific to a religion, but like the fact that you could go in and those clergy members knew that the company was going to have a set of values they could play on that weren't just money-making values that they could like use this to push the, the moral obligation. Like that's such a powerful tool. And we don't really have that both because, you know, secularization, which I think is a great thing, but also because there's been this like longstanding sense that companies like main obligation is their fiduciary responsibility, their shareholders. Right. So anything else doesn't fucking matter. And as long as companies think that way, you know, there's that whole stream of argument that you can't make, right? You can't walk up to Coca-Cola and say, like, this is what morality requires of you. Because <laughs> Coca-Cola is like, what more, like, the law requires of me is to maximize value for my shareholders. So, like, get the fuck out, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I w- I feel
1: like like it's such an interesting story, but it almost could only exist in the time and place that it did exist right like you know when business was localized and when people had the same like you said moral compass more or less or the same the same laundry list of morality that they were all pulling from whereas I mean now I would say we all still know we all still have the same morals but it's different
0: (laughs) yeah it's harder to to make that pull because like there's not the pressure to be like an upstanding member of like the Christian community, you know, which I think is great because diversity is lovely, and I, I like being an atheist and not being punished for that, you know. <laughs> it's nice. Religion <laughs> is a very,
1: um, yeah. I most of the stories I have about religion are not super positive. This is like the one good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I think it's just interesting. And it's not to say that, like, you can't organize a boycott like this. I think a lot of the the lessons from Operation Breadbasket, like that six-step model, you could directly implement that today if you were an organization. And probably the organizations that are implementing boycott campaigns have thought about that kind of approach. But it just, it would have to be different because you can't, you couldn't just say, okay, everybody in this block of the community, like... We're going to pick it this company and that'll solve it because companies are so fragmented and communities that buy them are so fragmented.
1: I was just going to say, and communities are so fragmented now. We're going through a loneliness epidemic. Yeah. People aren't getting together in groups. I mean, even before COVID, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Now it's only groups under 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's. There's nothing that I do where I go and receive the same message as 60 other people every week, you know, in a personal setting. I
0: mean, obviously, I'm on Reddit and Twitter, but (laughs) (laughs) it's different. Well, and also everybody's social media is different, right? Like, I mean, I suppose there are echo chambers that you could easily, like, promote your information in. But everybody kind of has this, like, personalized information stream. We just don't have that shared... Yeah, there's not like one stream where you can get your messages out anymore. Society's so much more complicated than that. And so that must be a challenge for organizing nonviolent direct actions that require a lot of collective participation like boycotts do. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I loved the story, though. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it was fun. Uh, hopefully, I mean, we kind of brought it down at the end, but like, hopefully it was uh, uh, optimistic.
1: It's true. But also, I mean, we have to contextualize the times that we're living in. And the things that worked back then are maybe not necessarily going to work today. You know, Amazon and Coca-Cola are going to require different tactics in order to stop being evil.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't sue us. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Um, So did you do a challenge? Um, not really. I did. I, what I wanted to do was kind of think, OK, here's a historical example, but what can I find that's going on right now that's similar? And I wasn't able to find something that was like exactly the same. But I do want to give a quick shout out to the Stop Hate for Profit boycott movement. Uh, and that's that's the one that's getting companies to boycott Facebook ads, which I think is like it's a very 21st century version of this. Right. Like, rather than picketing local businesses, you're trying to get a virtual company to change its policy by getting other companies to stop putting out their ads in, like, cyberspace. No, but
1: you're right. And it's, it's for the first time in a really long time, it's something that seems to be working a little bit. So, you know, fingers crossed, that continues to have traction.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there isn't really a way to individually participate in that cuz I don't myself purchase Facebook ads. So <laughs> well, not yet. <laughs> I mean, maybe I could boycott Facebook, although that would require me to like do a lot less Instagramming than I do. I don't know. Man. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, I yeah, Facebook owns everything that that's good. Well, oh, that's that's the uh, that's the other problem with like the world today is everything's a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Competition law? What? Come on! <laughs> I know. Like even when I was like, oh, maybe I'll boycott Amazon, and I was like, well, that means that I gotta stop go- I've gotta stop going to to Whole Foods, which I mean I should do anyways, but it's, it's across the street from my house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I try to go to the Savon that's up the road instead, uh, you know, as much as possible. But sometimes it's just Whole Foods has better bread. I don't know what to tell you. I love bread. <laughs>
0: That's how they get you. <laughs> but I did make an effort
1: to. I've been using Goodreads for ever and ever and ever, and I literally just learned this week that it's owned by Amazon. So I switched to a different book website to keep track of all the books I've read. I don't know. That's nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but it is. It's it's a lot harder than like. I mean, really, what they were asking people to do in Operation Breadbasket was like go to a different supermarket, or in some cases, just go to the same supermarket but buy this type of bread instead of that type of bread and that's like a lot less inconvenient for you and also you've got the like social pressure of people being outside the store that like know you probably at least in some cases being like hey i saw you on sunday the pastor told us to do this like what the hell man Shame on you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just not something you can really, like, I can't pick it
1: Facebook and I can't. uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's tough. Uh, 2020 sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know.
1: um, Maybe good things will come.
0: Uh... (laughs) Uh, Maybe. But no, Operation Bread Basket was nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that is a nice story for, for us to tell for once. So that that is, that is uplifting. I appreciate that. Uh, if listeners want to talk about the episode with us, then they can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. We are on Instagram as well. Uh, but if you're trying to boycott <laughs> Facebook, come at us on Twitter. <laughs> and if we decide to buy ads for our show, we'll get billboards <laughs>
0: instead of Facebook ads. What would her billboard look like? I don't even know. I don't know. I feel like we don't have that much money. So I feel like it'd be a very small billboard. Hand painted, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll just go graffiti some billboards in my neighborhood. (laughs) Okay, that's probably enough. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next one.
0: All of these stories when I Google it are about him crying when Obama won, which is legit. That was I think a lot of people's reaction. I remember remember when people were optimistic about politics? Wasn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I cried when Trump won. Yeah, a different cry, but yeah. <laughs> I cried all day afterwards and I'm not even American. <laughs>